Lord, I pray that you would come by your Spirit and minister through the Word of God. We know it's the Holy Spirit's delight to take the things of Christ and to reveal them to us. And so we pray, Lord, for light upon your Word today, that it would do its intended work, Lord. We pray that we would just bring ourselves before you as empty vessels. And Lord, would you fill us with truth that we might be conformed to Jesus' image. In his name we pray. Amen. On February 25th, 1964, a young 22-year-old man by the name of Cassius Clay defeated the heavyweight champion of the world. And as he was leaving the ring, someone stuck a microphone in his face, and this is what he had to say. I am the greatest. I am the greatest thing that ever lived. I've just turned 22 years old and I've upset the heavyweight champion of the world. I must be the greatest. I've showed the world. I've shook up the world. I'm the king of the world. Listen to me. I'm the greatest. I can't be beat. Now, when you listen to someone talk like Cassius Clay, who later became Muhammad Ali, and they make these claims about themselves, how does it make you feel? <laughs> Cringe? <laughs> are, are, do you feel drawn to them? Or do you feel repulsed by them? I think you feel repulsed. Most people would be. You know, it's, it's not an attractive thing when someone is so arrogant and so proud and so braggadocious that they go on and on about how great they happen to be. Um, do you know anybody, you don't have to, don't tell us out loud who it is, but do you know anybody who's kind of an arrogant person? So maybe a friend, a neighbor, a family member, somebody that just is kind of arrogant. Do you enjoy hanging out with that person? I think most of us would kind of rather not. There's just an icky feeling about it. You see, pride is sin and it's ugly. That's my main proposition today. Pride is sin and it's ugly. It was pride that caused Lucifer and a third of the angels to be kicked out of heaven because he said, I will be like the Most High God. And it was pride that caused Adam and Eve to be kicked out of paradise, the Garden of Eden, because they thought that they could become just like God if they would eat of the forbidden fruit. And it's pride that will cause millions and millions of people to end up in hell because they don't want to humble themselves and admit that they're unworthy sinners and that they must be saved by somebody else, that their good deeds and their own righteousness is never going to be sufficient to get them into heaven. So pride is a damnable thing, and it's a very ugly thing. And we're going to be learning about that today. In this section of Luke, Luke is going to show us the faults of his disciples. And he shows us three very short stories about the disciples, one after the other. He kind of, I think, lines them up together because they all have a similar theme in mind. At each of the, of the failures of these disciples, there was a root, and pride was at the root of all three of them. And then we see Jesus gently and wisely and directly correcting that issue of pride that his disciples had. So here's my proposition. Pride is sin and it's ugly because it exalts self it excludes others, and it enjoys retaliation. Let's take a look at them. First of all, it exalts self. Let's take a look at verse 46. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. 
But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is greatest. Now, do you know what Jesus had just been talking to them about prior to these three little stories? He's talking to them about the fact that he's going up to Jerusalem and he's going to be rejected. Which means he's going to be crucified by the religious leaders. So Jesus is filled with the knowledge that his impending death is just ahead of him. He's going on his way to die for sinners. And his disciples, who are supposed to be just like their master, they're fighting and arguing about which one of them is the greatest. It just seems like such a crazy contrast. And when you, when you read that line... An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. It's almost comical. You know, you think, really? You guys, <laughs> you're really arguing amongst yourself as to who's going to be the greatest one? Um, and the thing that, to me, <laughs> makes it even more amazing is that this was not the only time the disciples argued about that. There are at least three times in the Gospels where this was the subject of argument amongst them. We have it here. In Luke 9, and then we have it in Matthew chapter 20, which is right before Jesus entered into Jerusalem. So this is some time later. And then you have it at the Last Supper, right after communion. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Three times. Now what does that tell us? It tells us that pride is not so easily conquered and won so that we no longer have to deal with it. Pride will rear its ugly head in our life over and over and over. You know, you've ever, you played that game where the little head pops up and you smash him down and he pops up somewhere else. That's what pride is like. It's always popping up somewhere and we've got to kill him every time it pops up. So why were they having this argument to begin with? Well, they knew that they were on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus had made that clear. And they figured that when he got to Jerusalem, he was going to overthrow the Romans they knew he was the Messiah, and their idea of the Messiah was that Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans, and the Jews are going to be the top dogs, they're going to be the top nation of the world, Jesus is going to ascend to the throne and reign as king. And wow, Jesus is going to be king. I wonder who he's going to choose to be on his right and his left. Who are, who's going to be the most important of those 12 disciples that he's going to exalt once he becomes the Messiah? And this is running through their minds, and Finally, they start verbalizing it. I wonder who it's going to be. Now, remember they've just got back from the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus took three of the twelve, and they went with him up to the top of that mountain, and they beheld the glory of Christ, and they saw Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. And so I'm sure three of them are saying, well, if any of you are going to get chose, it's got to be one of us. I mean... We were there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. None of you guys were. And we were there on the mountain. We saw Jesus glorified. You guys didn't see him. So it's got to be eliminated down to Peter, James, or John. And Peter probably said something like, well, if it's going to be anybody, it's got to be me. <laughs> I mean, I am definitely the natural leader amongst you guys. When everything, whenever anything needs to be said, I'm the one that says it. When Jesus asked us, who do you say that I am? I'm the one that piped up and told everybody, you're the Christ of God. I'm the natural leader here. It's got to be me. <laughs> but then, I wonder if James said, well, you know what? Whenever we have dinner together, I'm always the one that's leaning on Jesus' breast. We have a real connection. We're close. Maybe it's going to be me. And I wonder if Judas popped up. 
Well, hey, I'm the treasurer. I hold the money bag. If anybody's going to be on the right hand, wouldn't it be the treasurer? Maybe it's going to be me. And so they're arguing together, who's the greatest? Who's Jesus going to exalt? Interesting. They're comparing themselves with each other, and they're posturing for position, and that's what pride causes us to do, doesn't it? We start comparing ourselves with somebody else, and in our eyes, we're always a little bit better than the guy that we're comparing ourselves to. Now, what does Jesus do? He brings in a little child. He needs to teach them, doesn't he? They've got pride issues, and Jesus needs to deal with that. And so he, he brings in a child. Verse 47, Knowing what they were thinking in their heart, he took a child and stood him by his side. Now, if you look at Mark 9.36, it says he held him in his arms. I'm sure both of those things happened. Jesus held him in his arms. He stood by his side. So this child was small enough to be held in somebody's arms, but old enough to be able to stand by itself by somebody's side. So my guess is he's probably somewhere between three and seven years old. A small child. Now, in Jewish culture of that day, uh, they didn't even bother to start teaching children the law, the Torah, until they were 12. And so the, the way Jews regarded children was that they were just insignificant and unimportant until the age of 12, because then they began to really learn the law. But until that time, they were like the lowest one on the totem pole in Jewish society. They were insignificant. They had not achieved anything. They lacked knowledge. They were just people that really had not really done anything important. So Jesus takes one of these children, he puts him by his side, and he says, listen, if you receive this little child, you're really receiving me. And guess what? If you receive me, you're really receiving God, my Father, who sent me. So what's the lesson? The lesson is that God has called us to receive and to love and to care for those people who are like little children, insignificant, unimportant, the ones that are marginalized in society, the poor, the downtrodden, the people who don't have much in this world, the ones like little children, he's calling us to receive them. And if we receive people like that, he says, you're actually receiving me. So if you want to receive Jesus, go find someone that's like a little child who has no status. No importance amongst others and love them and care for them and take care of them and hang out with them. You say, well, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I mean, I, I know some people that I know them, but I don't know if I'd want to hang out with them. I mean, they're not a, in my same socioeconomic status. I mean, I live a middle class life and they live in a, a rundown, ghettoish type of apartment, and they don't have any education, and they don't have any job, they live off of welfare. I don't think I want to hang out with them. Well, then you need to be rebuked this morning, if that's your attitude. Because Jesus said, if you want to receive him, go find someone that needs to be loved and cared for, and doesn't have the power in society today, and go love him, and receive him. And you're going to be receiving God himself. God himself. And then he says this. Look at verse 48. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. The one who's the least. So you're arguing out about who's the greatest? Well, just ask yourself, who's the least here? Which one of you is the least? Then you found the greatest one right there. Now, sometimes I wonder, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
Is it going to be one of these world-famous TV evangelists that everybody knows that's on the tips of everybody's tongue? My hunch is it's probably going to be people we've never even heard about. Obscure people. You know, we don't know their names, but God does. And they're in the far-flung corners of the earth, maybe in villages that we've never even heard the name of these villages, living their, their lives sold out for Jesus, pouring their lives out for poor and underprivileged people. Maybe it's in America, it might be people that minister to AIDS patients or homeless drunks or drug addicts or prostitutes or people who can't even rub two pennies together to buy something to eat. The poor, the, the marginalized. These are the kinds of people that, that Jesus has called us to love and to care for and to receive. And if we do, we're actually receiving Jesus Christ. Now, Instead of exalting ourself, which is what these guys were doing, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12.10, give preference to one another in honor. Isn't that a great saying? Give preference to one another. Instead of arguing about who's the greatest, well, I'm certainly the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Why don't you take the lowest place and give preference to somebody else? Push them to the top. Go ahead and take the low position. Lift them up. That's okay. It's okay for someone to go before you. In fact, it's more Jesus-like to do that. In a lot of churches, people will actually leave a church because maybe they've done something that they think is really significant and they weren't recognized for that. Nobody said something about that publicly or from the pulpit. And so they get their feelings hurt and they just leave. And folks, that's just... A manifestation of pride. If we're doing what we're doing because we want to be recognized, we're really doing it for the wrong reason, aren't we? And we're doing it for the wrong people. We're not doing it for Christ. We're doing it for the approval and the opinions of other people. And God is calling us to do what we do, not for the approval of man, but for His approval alone. So it shouldn't really matter if we're ever recognized or not. I heard, actually I read about um, a missionary to the Philippines. Interesting, interesting story about this fellow. He went to a very um, primitive tribes people in the Philippines. And when he was ministering among them, one day he was trying to teach them how to play croquet. Have you ever played croquet before? You have the, the mallet and the ball and you try to get the ball through the wickets. Well, he was teaching them the rules and he was telling, okay, this is what you do. You, you hit the ball against your opponent's ball and knock it out of the court. And they couldn't understand that. It confused them. Because they survived by cooperating together against other enemies. Cooperation was what they valued, not competition. And so they couldn't get that concept. So while they were playing this game of croquet, finally one of these tribesmen was able to get his ball through the last wicket. And so what does he do? He goes back to his other team members he's supposed to be playing against and he starts coaching them about how they could get their ball through the wickets too. And once the, the last guy finally got his ball through the wicket, they all jumped up and down together and they said, we won! We won! Not I won, like Americans would say, but we won. It was a whole different spirit. And so what that caused me to think of is, do I have a me mentality or do I have a we mentality? Am I all about myself? Or am I all about Jesus and His people? And that's what He would want us to be. 
There's a book written in 2006. It was a best-selling book called The Secret by Rhonda, and I'm not sure I pronounce her last name, B-Y-R-N-E, Byrne, perhaps, or Byron, I'm not sure. Has anyone ever heard of this book, The Secret? It's a self-help book. 19 million copies were sold. And it has a provocative title, doesn't it? The Secret. So everybody wants to read this book to find out what's the secret about how you can really succeed in life. Well, let me read to you what the secret is from her own words. The earth turns on its orbit for you. The oceans ebb and flow for you. The birds sing for you. The sun rises and sets for you. The stars come out for you. Every beautiful thing you see, every wondrous thing you experience is all there for you. Take a look around. None of it can exist without you. No matter who you thought you were, now you know the truth of who you really are. You are the master of the universe. You are the heir to the kingdom. You are the perfection of life. What do you think? Is that the secret? When I read that, I felt like, ah, gag me with a spoon, man. <laughs> what nonsense. 19 million people bought into this nonsense about how they were the master of the universe. How in contrast to these little tribes people wanting to help their fellow uh, people are trying to beat, help them get the ball through the basket. And now you have this person in Australia writing a book saying, you are the master of the universe. See, what we find here in the disciples is an exaltation of self. And that's how pride was manifested, arguing about who among them was going to be the greatest. And whenever we find that going on in our lives, slam on the brakes. And it's going to pop up in your life. Maybe it already has today. <laughs> There's probably enough pride in our lives during this last week to damn every one of us to hell. It's a prevailing sin that all of us struggle with. Makes us me-centered instead of other-centered and God-centered. Someone put it like this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So think about that. Humility is not trying to make yourself lower than you are. It's just forgetting about you and thinking about God and other people. And if we could just do that, how free we would be. <laughs> we're all bound up and, and under bondage because we're so into me, you know. We're so into us, ourselves. So the first reason that pride is sin and it's ugly is because it exalts self. The second reason is because it excludes others. Look at the second little story in verse 49. John answered and he said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he doesn't follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. So here's John. I'm sure he was coming to Jesus expecting his approval. An attaboy, a pat on the back. Yeah, you did the right thing, John. That was great. He expected that and he got a rude awakening, didn't he? Lord, we saw somebody casting out demons. He was doing it in your name, but he wasn't following along with us. And us is the, the root, the word you need to fo focus on there. He wasn't following along with us. And so we tried to prevent him. And Jesus, instead of commending him, corrects him. He says, don't do that. Don't hinder him. Whoever is not against you is actually for you. Now, what do we know about this guy who is casting out demons? Well, we know three things. 
Number one, he was actually casting out demons. That's what the text says. We saw somebody casting out a demon. He actually did it. So there was a manifestation of power going through his life. That's in contrast to the nine disciples who were trying to cast out that boy's demon when, they, when Jesus was up on the mountain, and they couldn't do it. So perhaps there's a little bit of competition and struggle. Hey, he was doing something that we couldn't do. You better stop doing that over there. So first thing is, he was casting out demons. Second thing, he was doing it in Jesus' name. It wasn't his own name or some rabbi's name. This was Jesus' name. So he must have believed in Jesus. He must have believed in the power of Jesus' name to invoke his name over demons. So at some level, this guy is a disciple. Maybe not one of the disciples following along with Jesus, but he is a disciple nonetheless. Now there were all kinds of disciples in Jesus' day other than just the twelve. Some of them were part-time disciples who would come and listen to him teach whenever they could. Now, the twelve were full-time. They had devoted their lives just to living and following with Jesus, but there were many others. So he was casting out demons. He was doing it in Jesus' name, meaning that he was a disciple. And number three, the third thing we learn about him is he wasn't following along with the twelve. And that's what got John upset. Now, why would that upset John? I mean, wouldn't he be excited that this guy is going around casting out demons? I mean, think about the torment of living with a demon controlling and possessing you, and here comes somebody who's casting it out and freeing people. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Wouldn't you say, keep going, keep doing what you're doing. I love it. But John says, no, stop that, because he wasn't following along with them. There was this air of self-importance in John. He was upset because this guy didn't belong to their group. He wasn't part of their little clique. You know, he, they had this party spirit thing going. A sectarian view. Us four no more slam the door, you know. <laughs> We're the ones that are Jesus' disciples and not you. You shouldn't be doing that. This is our work. We are the important ones here. We're the disciples. I, I have a very dear friend who belongs to a different church. And one day we invited he and his wife to come down and visit us. We were living in Sonora. And uh, we were part of a house church at that time. We met in our home usually on Sundays. And so they were coming to visit and stay at our home. And so we said, hey, why don't you stay and have church with us? And I was shocked when he said, well, we can't do that. Well, why not? You're going to be here anyway. They were going to drive off to go to church and then come back later. Why, why can't you just stand and have church with us? He says, well, this isn't a true church. Well, what do you mean? It's not a true church. Well, what's the name of your church? And we didn't even have a name for our church. It was a house church. None of us had ever even thought of naming it. It was just a, a group of believers that met in a home. Um, I said, well, we don't have a name. Well, the Bible always uses the name the Church of Christ. And you don't, you don't go by that name. I said, well, so what? Well, it's not a true church unless you go by that name. Furthermore, it's not a true church unless you actually believe that when you're getting baptized, you're being saved at that moment. I said, oh, okay. I guess there's no arguing here. <laughs> but that just, it, it, that kind of illustrates this, this spirit that the disciples had at this point. They were an elite group, an exclusive group that had the goods, you know, they had the truth, they had Jesus, and they didn't want anybody else doing what they were the ones that were called to do. 
And it's a sad thing. Do you know one of the marks of a cult is this exclusivistic spirit. Study any cult you want. And you're probably going to find this. They think they're the ones that are going to heaven and nobody else is. Jehovah's Witnesses, they're the only ones being saved. Mormons, they're the only ones going to the third heaven. Now you may get to the second one or the first one, but never to the third one unless you become a Mormon. Moonies, they are part of God's real true family on earth. Nobody else is except for them. It's reducing God's kingdom to this one little group, and it's so petty, and it's so small, and it's so sad when we do that. And you know, that spirit can seep into any church, and it does. You start to think, well, we're Baptists. Now, we're not just Baptists, we're Orthodox Baptists. We're Reformed Baptists, or whatever kind of Baptist you want to be. We're the ones that really have the truth. Now, you guys have some of it, but we have it all. You know, we've got the truth and we know what's true and you guys are just a little bit down here. We're way up here. And so, it may not be the name of your denomination that you take pride in, but maybe it's one of your pet doctrines. Now, there are some doctrines of Scripture that we do not debate over. We do not uh, quibble about. We, we accept them as the very revealed truth of God because they're salvation issues, like the deity of Jesus Christ. But there are other issues that are secondary. They're not salvation issues. And we can become so enamored with these doctrines that they become so important to us that we will actually break fellowship with somebody over these doctrines. For example, in some churches, unless you're pre-trib, pre-millennial, if you don't know what that means, it's okay. It would take a long time to explain it. But anyways, it's a certain view of the end times. Unless you partake of that particular view, you're out. We're in if we have that view. Anybody else is out. I used to be in that group, and I'm no longer, I guess I'm out now because I changed my mind about that view many years ago. But I'm just the same person I always was. I, I still love Jesus just as much now as I did back then. And I think I'm maybe a little bit more biblical now than I was then. I hope I am. We'll see when I get to heaven. But that's one of the things. Uh, another thing would be, unless you believe that a person needs to be baptized in the Holy Spirit after salvation and receive the gift of speaking in tongues, you really are not there, brother. There's something really lacking in your life. You're out. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you right now what I believe and what I don't believe. I'm just telling you that this can be an issue that's a secondary issue that we fight over and actually take pride in and exclude others. And folks, let me, let me get real personal here. <laughs> folks at the bridge... We love the doctrines of grace here, the doctrines of sovereign grace. We believe in election, predestination, total depravity, irresistible grace. We believe those things. And it would be wrong for us to become prideful over those issues and divide and say, all of you guys over there, you're out because you don't see the same things that we see over here. We'd be just like the disciples. Hey, he's doing something and he's not part of our group. Instead of competing with Christians that disagree over secondary issues, we ought to see how we can uh, cooperate with them for the spread of the gospel. Certainly there are believers that we don't see eye to eye to, with on every issue that we can link arms with. We still believe the same gospel. And folks, there's the most essential thing about all of this that I can get across to you today. Here's the essential thing. Not what rapture position or millennial position or what you believe about the Holy Spirit, what you believe about predestination, here's the issue. What do you believe about Christ in the gospel? 
If we can get that right, Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, come down to save sinners. He lived a perfect life. He offered up his life substitutionarily on the cross to pay the debt of sin. And then he rose again from the dead on the third day. And he offers full and free forgiveness to anyone who will repent of their sins and trust fully in him. I can find any person on the planet who believes that. And I can link arms and say, you're my brother. Let's go save some souls. <laughs> Let's go witness. Let's bring some people into the kingdom. It's interesting. I've been to a few other countries in my life. I've been to Belarus once and Mexico and Debbie and I went to China at one point. And isn't it interesting that you can go anywhere on the planet and if you find someone that loves Jesus and hates sin, there's this instant connection, <laughs> a spiritual connection. And you haven't gone down your list of doctors to find out where they stand on election or predestination or the second coming or the, all these things. You don't know what they think about all that. But you know this person loves Jesus and they are... Uh, denying themselves, they're taking up their cross, they're following Him, they hate sin, they're going to the same heaven we're going to. Well, isn't that what's essential? So, although we may think that certain doctrines, secondary issues are important, and they are, and we need to study them and come to convictions on them, I'm not arguing that at all, we have to have a humble spirit where we allow people in rather than pushing them out. So there's the key issue, the gospel. We need to keep the main thing, the main thing. So it's ugly because if we manifest the spirit of pride, it can start excluding others that should be included in the kingdom. It's ugly because it exalts self. It's ugly because it excludes others. And thirdly, it's ugly because it enjoys retaliation. Look at this last story, verse 51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You don't know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Now, what an interesting story we've got here. Jesus is steadfastly setting his face like flint to go to Jerusalem because he knows he has a divine appointment to die for sin. So as he's doing that, he sends some messengers on ahead into a city, a village of the Samaritans. And you folks know how the Jews felt about Samaritans? They get along pretty well. They hated each other's guts. <laughs> That's what, let me tell you a little bit of history lesson. Um, back in 722 BC, the Assyrians came into the northern ten tribes and they conquered them. And they carried them all off. And then they brought other people from other places of Assyria and repopulated the northern ten tribes. But when they took all the Israelites away, they didn't take quite all of them. They left some, like the weak, the sickly, uh, the elderly, some of the women, they just left some behind. And so what's going to happen over time with those Jews that were left and these other people that were brought in to live right next to them? They're going to intermarry, aren't they? And that's exactly what happened. They intermarried, they had children, those children had children, and that became the Samaritan race. And they were half-breeds. And so strict Orthodox Jews who didn't have their bloodline mixed with pagans despised them. 
and said, we, we're going to have nothing to do with you. You're a half-breed. You're a dog. You're just like a Gentile. And the Samaritans likewise did the same towards Jews. In fact, the Jews believed that we were to worship in Jerusalem at the temple. Well, the Samaritans said, we're going to come up with our own system of worship. And so they did. They had their own mountain, Mount Gerizim. They had their own temple, their own system of sacrifice and worship. And they had these two rival systems of religion going on. Well, Jesus sends the messengers into Samaria because he needs to know where he's going to stay the night. Probably nice not to have to sleep on the ground. Can you guys find some lodging and inn someplace? They came back and said, Master, I'm sorry, but they're not going to receive you anywhere. We tried. When we told them that we were going to Jerusalem, that was it. Because they knew that we were Jews. They don't like Jews. They believe Jerusalem's not the place to worship. And so they wouldn't welcome us in their village. And at that point, John and James, the sons of thunder, you know, the guys that were hotheads, they said, okay, Lord, just, do you want us to call down fire and just burn them up on the spot? Now, where in the world did they come up with this idea of calling down fire from heaven? I mean, doesn't that seem kind of out of the, Jesus? I, we, we never read that Jesus did this anywhere, right? So why would they think that they're going to call down fire and burn people up? Well, just think with me for a minute. They're in Samaria, and they had just seen Elijah on the mountain. Samaria, Elijah, I think some things, explosions are going off in their brain. Oh, yeah, there's a story back in 2 Kings chapter 1. In Samaria, there was a king, the king of Israel, King Ahaziah. And King Ahaziah had fallen through some lattice, and he was injured, severely injured. And he didn't know if he was going to live or die. And so he sent some of his messengers to a pagan god, Baal. Let me get the name for you because it's not one I remember. Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. Go find out from him. Inquire of this god whether I'm going to live or die. And so they set out on their mission. But at the same time, the angel of the Lord comes and appears to Elijah and says, I want you to go down to these messengers and ask them, is it because uh, there is no god in Israel that you're inquiring of Baal-zebub? Why in the world are you going to inquire of this pagan god when Jehovah God is the God of the Jews, and he can clearly answer your prayer. And he says, tell him that King Ahaziah is not going to get up from his bed, but he's going to die. So Elijah went to King Ahaziah, and he told him, you're not getting up from your bed, you're going to stay there until you die. And then he left and went back. And King Ahaziah was so mad, so enraged, that he said, okay, captain, take 50 of your soldiers, I want you to go and arrest Elijah and bring him back here. So they did. They went after Elijah. Elijah's up on a mountain. They said, come down here. The king wants you. Which is another way for saying, you're under arrest. Get down off that mountain. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down and consume these men. And fire came down and just burnt them to a crisp, devoured these 50 men. And King Ahaziah, not being a very bright guy, set 50 more back. And the same thing happened all over again. He calls fire down again. So this is running around in the heads of James and John. Samaria? Elijah? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Elijah didn't like those guys, and he called fire down on them. We don't like those Samaritans. Let's call fire down on them. And what's interesting is that, well, look at the text here. Verse 
55. They're walking along. James and John say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down and consume them? And it says, he turned, which I imagine they're walking along, and he stops dead in his tracks, turn around, and he looks him straight in the face. I mean, this is an important thing that he has to tell them. He says, guys, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. You, you don't really know me very well, do you? You don't share my spirit, do you? I didn't come to destroy men's lives like you want to do. I came to save them. Sometimes we might look at certain population groups as the enemy that we'd like to see destroyed. In fact, there's a website called GodHatesFags.com. Disgusting. God hasn't called us to destroy people. He's called us to save them. Those people are the mission field, not the enemy. We're not there trying to kill them off. We're there trying to bring them to Christ who alone can save them and change their lives. And that goes for any people group with any kind of sin throughout the world. So this is the spirit of Jesus. He's come to save, not to destroy. Now, we're not a whole lot different from them, are we? What was the root issue behind them wanting to call down fire? I think it was pride. Because they're going, those guys don't know who we are, do they? They don't know who they're dealing with. They won't receive Jesus and they won't receive us. Well, we're just going to get them then, you know. Who do they think they are to rebuff us? His pride is welling up in their hearts. And that's why they want to destroy him. And we're not that much different. Can you recall any time when you really would have liked to get even with somebody? Like they did something to you that you didn't like? And man, and you might have even tried to do it. Maybe you actually did it. You got them back worse than they got you. That's pride. How dare they do that to me? as though I'm such a great lofty person that, well, in God's eyes, I'm not really up here, I'm way down here, but I think I'm way up here, and why would anybody do that to me? What did Jesus teach about revenge and retaliation? Matthew 5.44, he said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So here we've got an enemy. He's done us dirty. He's done us good. What do we do? Do we go back after him? Well, according to Jesus, we love him and we pray for him. That's what we do. What did the Apostle Paul say? Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Never, never, never do it. But leave room for the wrath of God. God will do it. You don't have to. Let God take care of that. You don't have to go after anybody. So, pride wants to hurt people. Humility wants to love people like Jesus did. So pride is sin and it's ugly because it exalts self, it excludes others, and we see here it enjoys retaliation, wants to get even. Now do you see this morning how ugly pride is? Have you ever seen any of those three things in your own life? Have you ever noticed a time when you were exalting your own self? Or excluding others because you were an elite in an elite special group and you didn't think others fit into this class or maybe it's because you were retaliating against something that someone had done to you? Let's ask ourselves a few questions this morning. Did Jesus ever exalt himself? What do we know about Jesus? It says that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took on himself the form of a man, a human being. And he went down, 
down. It wasn't low enough just to become a human being. He became like the scum of the earth because that's what people crucified were to the people. They were despised and it was considered they were cursed by God if they were hanging on a cross. And Jesus was willing to be looked at as someone being cursed by God, hanging up there publicly as a spectacle before all the people. He went down, down, until there was no further place he could go. Did Jesus ever exclude others? Well, when you look at his ministry, who's he ministering to? Is it just the rich and the affluent and the VIPs and presidents of corporations? <laughs> He's touching lepers. He's touching corpses. He's touching a woman who has an issue of blood. He's ministering to prostitutes. He's letting a woman who is an immoral woman take down her hair and weep over his feet and then wrap her hair around his feet to dry it off, which would probably be scandalous to the religious leaders of the day. So he's definitely reaching out to the poor, the very kind of people that that little boy, that little child represented in the story. But also, he doesn't neglect the rich. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would be from the wealthy class, and yet they became disciples of Jesus. He doesn't just reach out to the irreligious, he's also reaching out to the religious folk, members of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. He would go to their home and he would minister truth to them. He's going to the rich, the poor, all stratums of society. He said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He said in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So he's throwing up and open his arms, and if someone doesn't come to him for life, it's not his fault. He's inviting, he's urging, he's pleading. It's their own wicked, depraved heart that keeps them back. So he doesn't exalt self, he doesn't exclude others, he doesn't seek revenge. Because when his enemies were nailing those spikes through his wrists and his feet and thrusting the sword, the spear into his side when they were scourging him. Later on, he simply said, Father, forgive them. He could have called down thousands of angels to wipe them out in a second, but he didn't. As a lamb that's led to slaughter, as a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he didn't open his mouth. While being reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't take revenge. Now, he will one day. He's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah to seek vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we're looking at him in his earthly ministry. He didn't take revenge. And if we are to be like our Lord, we need to fight pride when it rears its ugly head and causes us to want to exalt ourselves over others, or wants us to think that we're part of some special elite group that nobody else is in. Oh, how ugly that is. Or what even causes us to go out and seek to take revenge and give back and get even at other people because they did that horrible thing to hurt me, such a high and mighty person like me. No way are they going to do that. I'm not going to stand for it. So... Christ is calling us to follow in His steps. And to do that, we've got to kill pride in our life. And the only way we're going to do that is by the power of the Spirit. Because naturally, we, we don't have the power to do that. 
We need to come to this Savior who alone can cleanse us and who alone can grant us the power of the Spirit to enable us to kill pride and to model a life of humility before other people and before Him. So let's go to Him now together. We do ask, O oh Father, in Jesus' name, that You would please come to us. We, we freely confess, Lord, the pride in our lives. It pops up way too often. We're, we're humbled by it when we, we see the ugliness that is still lurking in our hearts that wants to make us number one and wants to put others down and wants to get back at people. Oh God, please forgive us. And please grant us the power of the Holy Spirit to recognize when that's happening and to seek you that we might walk like Jesus walked. And we pray in your holy name. Amen.